Lord, as we open your word once again, and we build into our lives line upon line and precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. We pray that you would add, add to our learning, for you said grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Lord, we pray that that learning would be for us a reservoir of resources in times of need, times where we're faced with a counseling situation or a witnessing opportunity or a time when we're in distress and we just need to pull a promise out or a warning out that your word in our lives would be active. Thank you, Lord, for hungry people, for your flock. Thank you, Lord, how you've watered the ground yesterday and today. And we're reminded of that great scripture in Isaiah that as you send rain from heaven and it doesn't return, and you bring bread to the uh, seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so your word won't return void. It's going to do what you've sent it out to accomplish. And we pray that you would do that tonight. Some of these, Lord, are principles that uh, we're not used to getting our minds around because we haven't spent much time in the Old Testament. I pray that none of us would feel intimidated by it, but devoted to it. That we might understand the kind of heart that Jeremiah had for his people. That we might have the same heart. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you grew up going to church? Show of hands. Okay. How many of you came to Christ, even though you went to church, you didn't know him, but you came to Christ later on? Where it was a See, that's, that's pretty typical. Where you've been raised in a church setting, but you didn't know Christ necessarily because of the religious setting, but something happened to you, got your attention, whatever it might be. We all have our testimonies. And they're all powerful. God changed our lives. That's the bottom line. I read about a story, true story, a tragic story. A 16-year-old girl was um, kidnapped and held prisoner for four months. Kept alive, and she survived, but she was kept a prisoner for four months in the attic of a church in Memphis, Tennessee. Now imagine the scene, imagine what she would hear as every week people would gather to pray, to sing, to worship, to fellowship with one another. All the while, week after week, for four months, there was a prisoner in church, locked up, terrified, wanting to get out, in a church where there was great fellowship, nobody knew about it till four months later, two of those who were working in maintenance found the girl. She was released and she survived. I bet that that has played out more often than we'd like to think. That there are people in church, that churches can be full on Sundays, and yet there are people in the pews that are prisoners. They're not yet set free. They yet don't know God. That was the situation in Jeremiah chapter 7 through 10. We're not going to read all four chapters, but this is called the Temple Discourse. Jeremiah has given two great messages to the people of Israel. And like the previous two, this third is a warning of God's judgment. 
However, this message is to religious Judah, the southern kingdom, religiously devoted to God, but their hearts were far from God. They were going to the temple. They were relying on the ritual. But their hearts were far from God. And so it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. The problem, as we'll see, is what they were trusting in. They were trusting in, as maybe you grew up, if you grew up like me, trusting in a ritual at a place rather than a relationship with a person. I went to a place. I did rituals at the place. I trusted in the fact that certain rituals were kept and committed by me. I was baptized. I was confirmed. I went to confession. I trusted in rituals done at a place rather than a relationship with a person. So I, I grabbed onto and I maintained the outward veneer, but inside my heart wasn't changed till, as my testimony is, I was 18 years of age. So Jeremiah the prophet is sent by God to, you might say, the foyer of the church as people are walking in the temple to go through their ritual. He's going to give this message to them. And as we go through this, you try to place yourself in Jeremiah's shoes and say, would you want to be a prophet? Would you sign up for that job if it were offered? This guy had it tough. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, if you do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt, then, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I give to your fathers forever and ever. Now, what would you think if you were walking in the temple? Or walking in the foyer of the church, and there's Jeremiah the prophet. A 20-year-old, 22-year-old punk. Giving you the word of the Lord. And here you are, you grab your bulletin, you have your Bible, and you look at him, and you you see him, so you kind of want to stay around him. You go around the other side. I was in Jerusalem back in the 70s and 80s, and there was this guy... He, uh, I'm sure he's dead by now. He was old then. And he used to run around the complex of the old city of Jerusalem by the Western Wall. And he had his outfit on. He had his uh, uh, kippah, his head covering. He had his robes, dreadlocks, prayer shawl, phylacteries on his head with the scriptures inside. And he would shout scriptures as people would walk by. And they were annoyed at him. And I saw him year after year after year. And as I watched him, I thought, that must have been what it's like in this very city to see Jeremiah walking through the streets. People were annoyed with him. People were mad at him. 
They didn't want to hear the message. They certainly didn't want to be reminded of the fact that all of their temple worship wasn't enough. Now, honestly, we don't know when this third message was preached. We don't know if it was at the beginning of his ministry, which is when Josiah was king. Remember, Josiah was the young eight-year-old king who came to the throne. He was about 20 or 21 when the 20-year-old prophet Jeremiah started preaching. However, Jeremiah's ministry extended through four different kings. Six are mentioned. Four are really noteworthy. One was Josiah. And he brought reform to the land. But after Josiah died, a guy by the name of Jehoahaz, now you better remember these because you'll be tested on it next week. Jehoahaz came to the throne, but Jehoahaz only lasted three months and ten days. He was deported to Egypt, and in his place, Eliakim was put there by the king, King Shishak of Egypt. Eliakim had his name changed to Jehoiakim by the king of Egypt, and he reigned there several years. Jeremiah told him, this is all in 2 Chronicles 36, Jeremiah told him, don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, but he did, not listening to the man of God. What do these prophets know anyway? And so Jehoiakim rebelled. He was taken and deported to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. Jehoiachin was put in the place of Jehoiakim, previously named Eliakim. (laughs) Jehoiachin only lasted for three months, even less than Jehoaz. He was also deported, and in his place, a guy by the name of Zedekiah, King Zedekiah, until the fall of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586. Now, Jeremiah was there seeing all of the succession of these kings. He saw the spiritual reforms of Josiah. He saw people in this pseudo-revival and reformation. And he saw the people plunge back down into idolatry. So we don't know if it is during Jehoiakim's reign. I say that's a question mark because in chapter 26, you may just want to keep that little reference in your mind, you're going to read that he is called during the reign of Jehoiakim to preach in the temple. This could be, though it's not in chronological order, it is in uh, order perhaps of important ministry speeches, that this is during the reign of Jehoiakim. Or, if you want to believe it's during the reign of Josiah, because we really don't know, and it was fresh revival, fresh renewal, and everybody's going, isn't our temple cool? Whatever it might be, they were trusting in the wrong things. You got it? So you'll be tested next week on those kings. Now, they were saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. God says, change your ways, amend your ways, change your doings. It is a principle of Scripture that God never separates worship from the one offering the worship. God isn't looking for great worship. We are. God isn't. God's looking for great worshipers. People who worship Him in spirit and truth. Oh, oh, we want great worship. Wouldn't the worship great? I don't know. What was your heart like? Because the outward song, did it have a choir or not? Did it have drums or not? Did it have guitar or not? Doesn't mean a hill of beans. It's all the matter of the heart. And I've been in places where the worship is perfect. And my heart hasn't been right. And so if you were to ask me, how was the worship? I'd have to be honest and say, crummy. Oh, but it sounded great. No, I mean crummy in here. 
Well, it was great out there in the temple. It was crummy in here in people's hearts. Too often, like Israel, we make it all about the place where we do rituals than the person that we have a relationship with. It's all about the place. How cool is the place? Oh, I like this place or I don't like this place rather than the people and their relationship with God. There was a woman that Jesus met at a well of Samaria. Jesus knew all about her. She didn't know. She played it cool. She thought it was just another guy picking her up. I'm sure that's what she thought. She'd been hustled before. She had men approaching before. And as soon as Jesus said, hey, I'd like a drink, she said, oh, why is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? She knew their culture. She knew their custom. Jesus said, woman, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you'd ask me and I'd give you living water. Well, sir, where am I going to get this living water? The well is deep. And she went on and on and on. Finally, Jesus cut through all of the malaise and all of the smoke and mirrors and said, go get your husband. And she got very spiritual. After she said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, that's right. You're right. You've had five. And now you're living with a man out of wedlock. You're right. You don't have a husband. And then she said, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. (laughs) You think? The prophet. (laughs) Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Then she turns the conversation from these cute little answers to something very serious. And it's all about an argument as to the place of worship. Our fathers say that this mountain is the place where we ought to worship. But you Jews say it's Jerusalem. You know how it goes. Jesus said, woman, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father seeketh such to worship him. She made it about the place. And oftentimes you will find in conversations when you're sharing the gospel with people and you get close to convicting their heart of sin, then they'll bring up arguments. They want to deflect the feeling of conviction. Why is it that so many churches can't get along with each other? Which is the true church? How come this church argues with that church? And how come, and they'll try to deflect it. They make it about the place. Sometimes evangelical Christians make it all about the place. When we started our fellowship many years ago in Albuquerque, I had just come from California, and we started in an apartment complex, and it was, it was dingy. It was a clubhouse. The pool table in it. We had a Bible study in it. But soon this pool table party place was, in people's minds, a holy place. Not right at the moment, but as years went by and we moved on from building to building because we were getting larger. And I remember one particular building we uh, purchased and uh, people thought, this is crazy, this is way too big, you're thinking way too big. You know, it would seat a couple thousand people. And uh, I had people say, I remember the Lakes Apartments. That's where God lived. (laughs) That's when it was really good. When the Spirit of God... Like what? God needs a certain seat in a certain place over by the pool table because that's where God lives? 
God transcends all. Listen, there are no holy places. There's only holy people. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. Now, if you're going with us to Israel, you're going to hear the term holy place. Don't be deceived by it. They don't exist. Oh, this is a holy place. And so you have to keep your voice down. Don't shout. It's holy. And you have to be quiet and you have to be covered. So if you're a man and you're wearing shorts, you have to have a long pair of pants to put on because God forbid that you should show God your kneecaps. You got to cover up. It's a holy place. Now, what's funny about that, and am I making fun of it? You betcha I am. Here's why. If you go to the Mount of Olives, there's three separate churches, and all of them are holy places, and all of them are churches that claim to be the exact spot where Jesus ascended up into heaven. So there's no universal consensus archaeologically, but Jesus ascended it in heaven from our church. No, from our church. No, from our church. And what's funny about that? They're all wrong. You know how I know that? Because as I read the Bible, it says, And Jesus departed as far as Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives, where incidentally there is no church built yet. (laughs) And the Bible says that's where he ascended. Isn't that funny that they just didn't read far enough? They had bought a different piece of real estate. But they swear that's a holy place. And again, no holy places, but holy people. But they were trusting in the holy place. And here's what they were doing. Oppression, thievery, breaking laws. But they were saying, as long as we go to the temple. Now translate that into a modern application. Cheating on my taxes, but I go to church. Unfair in relationships, but I go to church. Clinging to the church going or the temple going. That's what was going on. At that time. Verse 8. Behold. You trust in lying words. Which cannot profit. Will you steal. Murder. Commit adultery. Swear falsely. Burn incense to Baal. And walk after other gods. Whom you do not know. And then come and stand before me in this house. Which is called by my name. And say. We are delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. It was this phrase that our Lord Jesus Christ picked up on at the end of his ministry in Jerusalem when he walked through the temple one day, same temple, well, It was the temple that Herod enlarged, but the same temple area. And notice the people were buying and selling, making a profit, uh, extorting the prices of animals for sacrifice. Jesus took out a cord, a whip, and he drove them out of the temple. He did it twice, by the way, not once. Once at the beginning of his ministry, once at the end of his ministry. But at the end of his ministry, he quoted this verse that the Lord God gave to Jeremiah the prophet. You've made my father's house a den of thieves. And the Lord is telling Jeremiah, he's to say that as people walk into the temple for worship. Behold, I, even I have seen it, says the Lord. But go now to my place, which is at Shiloh, where I set my name at first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people. Shiloh was another holy place. 
Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle stood before the temple was built. I'll get back to that in a minute. Places are important. And this is how they're important and why they're important. Places of worship are important because they house people who house the Lord. It affords us an ability to get together like this, open the Bible, sing songs, encourage one another. That's its value. The way to look at a building is sort of like lunch in a lunch sack. The lunch sack isn't all that important. You need it. You've got to have it to carry the lunch. But what's most important is what's inside the sack, the lunch. That's what you get fed from. So too many of us make it all about the lunch sack. How do you like our sack? And it's, we're going to have a lunch sack drive and build a new lunch sack. And lunch sacks are important, but if we lose sight of the lunch, then eventually you're going to eat your lunch. That's what happened to these guys. They were judged. They were taken captive into another place. By the way, did you know that God, though he set up the system of Judaism with the tabernacle and the veils and the courts and the altar, he set all that up. And by the way, it was the only religion God ever gave to man. And I want to underscore that. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is the doing away of religion to establish relationship. And here's what I mean. Even though God gave the temple, the tabernacle, the veils, the courts, the altars, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was ripped in half. What he was saying is, it's over now. You don't have to have a place or a ritual to come to me. You can come and have fellowship and intimacy with me. You don't have to go through all the ropes and bells and whistles and hoops and rituals. It can be on a relationship based upon what just happened on this cross. The veil was ripped. Here's the tragedy. Later on, the veil was sewn back up by the Jews. You can imagine they went in the temple and said, the veil, we better get to work and sew it back up. And God was going, no, they didn't quite get the message. Some of them did. Many of them were converted in Jerusalem, like Saul of Tarsus, who studied there in Jerusalem and others. But many of them did not, and they sewed it back up because they wanted the ritual. They wanted the distance. They wanted the place rather than the person in the relationship. Okay, God says, go to Shiloh, to the place where I set my name at first, verse 12, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all of these works, says the Lord, I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you But you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to this house, the temple, which is called by my name, in which you trust. Underscore that. They were trusting in the place. And to this place, which I gave to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh, I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all of your brethren and the whole posterity of Ephraim. You remember the tabernacle. That's the tent structure that God gave to the blueprints God gave to Moses when he was up on Mount Sinai. They built it. They brought it in from the wilderness into the land. They set it up. Command Central was on a little escarpment, a beautiful elevation in central Israel in the tribal allotment known as Ephraim, right smack dab in the middle. 
with a commanding view, a central location so that people from all over the tribes could get together and fellowship based upon those rituals. It was about nine miles from Bethel. Bethel, you remember, was the place that, remember when Jacob was out running from his brother and fell asleep, had a, had a dream of the angels going up and down? That was Bethel. So it was rich in its history. Excavations show us that around 1050 B.C., Shiloh was destroyed, devastated, probably by the Philistines. And I'm going to guess around 1 Samuel chapter 4, when there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel at a place called Aphek. And the Israelites were losing. And so they thought, we need our lucky charms. We need our amulet. We need our lucky ark. Go get the ark out of the tabernacle. Bring the ark into the battle and surely we'll win the battle. They didn't. The Philistines captured the ark, took it with them. And it was at that time probably that Shiloh was destroyed. So God says, check your history, boys. Go over and look at what happened to Shiloh because of how they treated me in looking to the place, the ritual, the ark, trusting in it rather than me personally. Go look what happened. That's the road he said you're heading down. Therefore, verse 16, do not pray for this people nor lift up a cry or prayer for them or make intercession to me for I will not hear you. God has never told me to stop praying for someone. All I can say is you have to be in a very desperate, what I think Romans calls reprobate place when prayers do no good. This is, by the way, the first of three times where God will say, stop praying for them, stop praying for them, stop praying for them. Evidently, Jeremiah kept praying for them. And now three strikes, they're out. Let it go. Now, if we continue, and we will, Verse 17, do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead their dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. The queen of heaven, also called the mother goddess, was a feminine deity to the Canaanites that came from the Babylonians. Her name was Ashtoreth or Ashtart. Uh, the Babylonians called her Ishtar. And I stood in, uh, in ancient Babylon. It's about an hour from Baghdad when I went there. And you can see the Ishtar gate, gate opening of the city that was dedicated to the mother goddess, the goddess of fertility, the consort of Baal. You'll find these two often together, Baal and Ashtoreth, male and female counterpart, god and goddess of fertility. She was also called the goddess of war. And I'm not going to draw a whole conclusion from that, but it's an interesting study that she was the goddess of war. Almost every ancient pagan religion had a mother goddess, whether it was Diana, Artemis of the Ephesians, Isis of the Egyptians, Ashtart of the Babylonians. Almost all of them had some mother goddess. 
they didn't serve a god, but they had a pantheon of different gods and goddesses that they served. But there were like always two kingpin, the father and the mother goddess. And the women would make cakes, raisin cakes, a symbol of honor to this pagan goddess who was probably on her feast day. And God says, they come to the temple, they go through the ritual, but they're also worshiping at these altars in a false system. Do they provoke me, verse 19, to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? In other words, shame on them. They should feel shame. Yes, they're provoking me to anger, but they ought to have some sense that this is wrong. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, on trees of the field, on the fruit of the ground, and it shall not be quenched. Uh, It shall burn and not be quenched. If you're coming with us this year to Israel, remind me to take you down to the digs in the city of David. If you go down from the pinnacle of the Temple Mount in toward ancient Jerusalem where David settled the city, there are some houses still intact. The walls and foundations are there, and you'll still see burn marks that date back from 586 B.C. The fire that the Babylonians burned the city with is still etched in many of the stones in some of the houses. They found... um, clay pots, and they found inscriptions in them uh, that have biblical references. It's fascinating to see how the spade of the archaeologist once again proves Scripture. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. When God delivered them from Egypt, he never gave them a law. He didn't give them a law until they started breaking that relationship of trust. They were out in the wilderness. They didn't have any law yet. They didn't have any circumcision um, law of Moses and covenant and ritual, etc. Until, as Moses went up on the mountain, the people went out, had this party and orgy and broke God's law. Moses came down, you know how the story goes, broke the commandments, written by the finger of God. They had to be written again. The law was given, that's just the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And then all of the other laws and rituals were added. But at first... It was just a simple relationship. Come out of Egypt. Trust me in the wilderness. And here's what God wanted. But this is what I commanded them saying, Obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear but walked in the counsels and imagination of their evil heart and went backward instead of forward. Once a person rejects God's claim on his life or God's claim on her life, once that is rejected, that person is now open to anything and 
or everything and will accept anything. I reject God, so now I'm open, man. I'm open. Nature abhors a vacuum. So when your maker who placed eternity in your heart is rejected and snubbed, then you're open to something else and it will be filled with something. In the book of Judges, there is a, there is a scripture that sums up the entire period. It says, And there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's classic existentialism. There's no king, there's no authority, who's in the th- on the throne speaking for God with profit into my life. There's no king in Israel, therefore nature abhors a vacuum. I have no authority. Therefore, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Classic existentialism. No moral authority. I do what I want to do. Tom Cruise was interviewed by Barbara Walters. Interesting interview. This superstar was asked by Walters about his belief in Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard's Scientology. He's a big fan of it and an ardent worshiper in that false religious system. And he was talking about his dyslexia and how that Scientology helped overcome his dyslexic condition. And Barbara Walters, in her usual cut-to-the-chase style, said, did it make you a spiritual person? Is it a religion to you? And he said, well, yes, Barbara, it is a religion, but it's not a religion where people put something on you or tell you to do something. He said, it's self-exploration. You make it what you want. Now, that goes back to judges. There is no king, and every man does what is right in his own eyes. I cannot help but parallel our country in the year 2004 with ancient Israel that we're reading here. Striking similarities. The religion du jour, the religion of the day, is there's no moral authority or consensus, and I do whatever I think is right in my eyes. There was a book put out. I have just a quip from it. Jim Patterson and Pete Kim put out a book of um, research on American habits and beliefs some years ago. This is what they said. Americans are making up their own rules, their own laws. Only 13% of us believe in all Ten Commandments. 40% of us believe in five of the Ten Commandments. We are choosing the laws of God we believe in. There is absolutely no moral consensus in this country. We are a law unto ourselves. Here's the irony, though. The more freedom Israel thought they had by throwing away the constraints of God, the more bondage they got into. And that is a principle. The more you do as as you please, the less you are pleased with what you do. I want to do what I want. Oh, you're headed right for bondage. It's such a delusion. They They were like the girl caught up in the church She was a prisoner. She was struggling. She was in terror. She was in bondage. But she was in church. They were in the temple. But they were doing what they want. And the Babylonians were surrounding them. So the more you do as you please, the less you are pleased with what you do. The more freedom you think you have apart from God, the more in bondage you become.
Oh, look at verse 24. They did not obey or incline their ear, but they walked in the counsels of their imagination, of their evil hearts, and they went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. And they did worse than their fathers. Evil became progressive. Therefore, you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. I would be depressed if I were Jeremiah hearing this. Jeremiah, go tell them this, but I'm warning you in advance. They're not going to pay attention to anything you say. Say this word, say it all, but they're not going to listen to you. I'd be depressed. Remember last week we said that being a prophet was probably one of the hardest jobs in the world for a few reasons, two reasons we gave last week. Number one, you had to be 100% accurate. If you were found to be less than that, you got stoned to death. And number two, that you'd see into the future all of the pain, all of the sorrow like Jeremiah saw that was coming upon the nation. Here's a third. To add to that, Jeremiah was sent on a ministry and he had no converts. And God told him, Here's your ministry. I've ordained you from before you were born, Jeremiah. But here's your ministry. You're going to speak. They're going to hate you. You're going to tell them the truth. And they're going to pursue you. They're not going to listen. Now, what if God told you to sell everything, pack up your little suitcase, get rid of all that you own, and go to a foreign country? And God would tell you somehow in advance, it's going to be the worst time of your life. Nobody will listen to you. There'll be a bump on a log. How would you feel? You'd say, forget it. No thanks. I don't want the job. Jonah didn't want the job, but it's because he knew it would be successful and he hated the people he was preaching to. Jeremiah was told no fruit's going to come, yet he did it anyway. He was obedient to the word of the Lord. But they will not answer you. It's a tough job to give a message like this. It was Vance Havner. Vance Havner used to be the chaplain to the Senate. He was a great preacher, writer from yesteryear. It was Vance Havner who said, God calls preachers to comfort the afflicted, but sometimes he calls them to afflict the comfortable. They were very comfortable in their religiosity. And he climbed down on them as they were coming into the temple. And God said, no one's going to listen to you. Go for it. (laughs) So you shall say to them, this is the nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Cut off your hair and cast it away. That was a, a signification, a sign of God cutting and casting the people away. And take up a lamentation on the desolate heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken Notice what he calls them, the generation of his wrath. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house, the temple, which is called by my name to pollute it. 
And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. There is a, a valley, and remind me to show you this as well when we get to Jerusalem, because you'll see the Kidron Valley, and if we're standing out there, you could look to the right if you're standing in the court of the temple area, and you can see this large valley that extends to the south and along to the west part of Jerusalem. It's very deep, and it's called the Valley of Hinnom, or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. It's an ancient name. Gehinom. Gehinom is the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was a place where they had little hills built, one called Tophet. Shrines were built and people worshipped idols. Now, I'm going to tell you how bad it got in Jerusalem before Josiah, that eight-year-old king that grew up to bring reform, how bad it got before he came. One of the gods of the Ammonites, one of the Canaanite groups, was called Molech. Molech was the fire god. He was worshipped by taking an image that was iron, made uh, in his image as if his arms were out like this, and his arms were elongated to hold the body of an infant. The metal was heated up to a white hot. And people, Canaanites, Ammonites, and eventually Israelites, brought their little babies and dedicated them to Molech by placing them on the white heart, hot arms of this idol, and they fried to death. That's called passing the child through the fire. To drown out the noise of the children, drums were beat in the valley of Hinnom. So the people in the city couldn't hear the gruesome noises of the babies crying. That was done by King Manasseh. He promoted that activity in Israel. And that's what so terrified Josiah once they found the book of the law. And he said, no more. Get rid of those high places. And he cleaned out the valley of Gehenna. Turned it into a garbage dump. And so they threw garbage there year after year. And there was always a burning in the valley of Hinnom. So it became, by the New Testament times, a metaphor for hell called Gehenna, a place that was a metaphor, a type of hell to them, where the fire never is quenched, the fire always burns. That's from that imagery that people knew of that valley of, of Hinnom. They have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, Nor did it come into my heart. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will no more be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Tophet until there is no room. The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of heaven and the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. And then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah, from the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of mirth, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. So God says, this is the practice of the past. This is what I'm going to do in the future. When the Babylonians come in, the city will be destroyed and corpses will fill that valley. So it's pretty obvious if you step back from this gruesome picture, that a ritual in a place 
doesn't excite God as much as a relationship with the person of God. That isn't just a New Testament concept. It's through the whole Bible. Isaiah chapter 1, don't turn there, but God says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices, saith the Lord? I'm sick of your sacrifices. I'm sick of your offerings. You oppress the poor, but you offer the sacrifices. You steal from the needy, but you worship in this place. You're not fair with uh, people who need, and you, you know, basically you cheat all throughout your life, but you're, you're worshiping. God never separates the worship from the worshiper. At that time, says the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of its princes and the bones of its priests and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. Make no bones about it. These people are going to be exposed, the dead bodies, from the graves And let me explain that. Let's just read on. They shall spread them before the sun and the moon, all the hosts of heaven which they have loved, in which they have served, after which they have walked, which they have sought, and which they have worshipped. But they shall not be gathered nor buried. They shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. Then death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of those who remain in this evil family, who remain in all the places where I have driven them, says the Lord of hosts. The Babylonians would do in Jerusalem what conquerors had a habit of doing. Conquerors would come into a city to the graves of kings, rich people, and honorable men, and raid the tombs, taking the treasures, taking the spoils for themselves, and desecrate the bodies by spreading out the bones of the honorable and the kings out in the sun. All of this was meant to do two things. Demoralize people who would be watching this from the city walls, like, oh, because they were next. It would demoralize them. This is their history, their legacy. The kings of Judah being taken and their bones laid bare. Number two, it was meant to display the superiority of their gods over the gods of the people they conquered. Demoralizing for the Jews to see this because the Babylonians were saying, our gods are stronger than your God. And so they would in shame be taken captive to Babylon after seeing this horrible event. But in verse 3, it's an interesting verse, and my mind lapsed forward to something. Then death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of those who remain in this evil family, who remain in all the places where I have driven them, says the Lord of hosts. What scripture did my mind go to? Revelation. Revelation chapter 9. When... In the tribulation that's coming in the future, Jesus called it, as well as Daniel, the worst period of time in history. The worst period of time in history. Think of World War II. Think of Vietnam. Think of what we've gone through in 9-11. Think of all of the bad times historically. Can't hold a candle to what's coming. During that time, for five months, as these demon hordes are released from the abyss and have a sting and they're tormented for five months, the Bible says men shall seek death and not be able to find it. Death shall flee from them. 
Imagine how horrible to suffer a fatal blow but not able to die. We think death is the worst thing in the world. Oh, no, it can be a blessing, a huge blessing. But imagine suffering fatality, a fatal wound, but you still are alive, your conscience, for five months. They'll seek death, but death will flee from them. Moreover, verse 4, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? Why then has this people slidden back? Jerusalem in a perpetual backsliding. They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I listened and heard, but they do not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his own course. And the horse, as the horse rushes into the battle. In the Bible, the term backslidden occurs 16 times. 13 of those are in this book. What does it mean to be a backslider? We've talked about it before, but I want to give you a biblical definition. Ready? This isn't mine. This is the biblical definition. Turn with me to Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14, 14. You may want to mark this and write in your margin of your Bible, definition of a backslider. This is what it is. Proverbs 14, 14. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. What did God say at the beginning part of Jeremiah? My people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Number two, they have hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. A backslider is simply somebody who decides to drink out of, feed off of, a source in their life other than God. They're filled with their ways, their path, their choices, not God's for their life. That's a backslider, filled with their own ways. Now, that's a personal condition of heart. However... The entire nation of Judah is called backslidden in heart. What can happen with one person could spread to two, three, or four, and in this case can pervade an entire nation so that the worldview, the moral outlook, is that I do what's right in my eyes, you do what's right in your eyes. It's very similar, as I say, to the present condition of our country. No moral consensus. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes existentialism, that is, I make my personal choices about life, not God. Nobody dictates to me what's going to be uh, no spiritual authority. I'm not accountable to anybody. That sort of thinking was the cultural norm in Judah. And I submit to you is the cultural norm today. That's why, folks, the Bible tells us to regularly take inventory of ourselves to lay our lives bare before God. First Corinthians 11, Paul says, if you judged your own self, you wouldn't be judged. And so you take a good, hard look at your own self before God. Judah did not do that. They were filled with their own ways. They were backsliding, uh, perpetual backsliding. Okay, let's finish out the chapter. We'll pray and we'll go. Verse 7, even the stork... In the heavens knows her appointed times and the turtle dove 
the swift. These were migratory birds. They knew the seasons to fly south, to fly north for feeding, etc. But notice what else. I thought you'd enjoy this, residents of this area. The turtle dove, the swift, and the swallow observe the time of their coming. Every year on March 19th, they say, from Goya Corrientes, Argentina, these birds make their yearly pilgrimage to Mission San Juan Capistrano. Here's God's point. Birds, they have an instinct to do what's right, to go where there's food, to flee from danger. My own people who have my own law and my dictates aren't smart enough to return to me in this time of danger. Now that's for the birds, isn't it? When God's own people aren't even as smart as something with instinct and we have a free moral choice and we know it's right and wrong and yet we choose death and we choose wrong instead of life. My people do not know the judgment of the Lord at the end of verse 7. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Look, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them Because from the least, even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. This is what they were saying. We have the Bible. We have the law. The law is with us. And it's true. The law was with them. Problem? They weren't with the law. You know, you can have the Bible... And you can read the Bible, and we can carry the Bible. But you know what we just read last Sunday. Jesus said, whoever hears my word and does them, I will tell you what I will liken him to. He's like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the storms came, house stood. The foolish man heard my words. He listened, but he didn't obey. He's foolish. He's like a man who built on the sand, and when the storms come, it'll be washed away. It's foolish to build your life on Bible reading without Bible obeying. Every day in our country, 34,362 Bibles are sold. That's good. But I wonder, what difference is it making? And I I don't presume to answer that. It's just a question I, I ask. We have the law. The law is with us. But they weren't with the law. Everyone deals falsely. Look at verse 11. They have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. Remember we read that last week in a different section. They've healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. Saying peace, peace. That's the false prophets. When there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall, etc. How many of you remember the 1960s with the peace sign and the peace marches and the peace rallies and the sit-ins? 
I remember them. I was little, but I remember them. (laughs) And you know what? They were good in that they brought relief slightly. They took away the pain of the war temporarily. It really didn't affect any change, didn't really do any great good long term, but it healed the hurt of our people slightly. False prophets do that. They give a message that is false so that people go, oh, thank you, I feel so much better. They're sinking. There was an author who said, this world is like a boat that is sinking. And the captain issues the order for everyone. Everybody is welcome to do anything on the ship. If you're in second class, you can have free first class tickets. If you'd like to, go to the bar and have free drinks on the house. If you want to play soccer in the dining room, go ahead, break lamps. We don't care. Just have fun. Everybody on the boat goes, what a great captain we have. We can do anything we want. There's no laws here. There's no regulations. Not like religion, church. I can do whatever I want. What a cool captain but they'll be dead in five minutes. The captain knows it. And that's what the devil goes, do whatever you want. I'll send prophets even that are false and give you any message you want just to make you feel good. As long as you die apart from Christ. So they healed the hurt of my people slightly. But God says they're going down. Verse 15, if you skip ahead, we looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health and there was trouble, the snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. That's up north. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of the strong ones. That's the army of the Babylonians marching from north to south. They have come and devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell in it. So peace, peace, they said, but no peace came. But the Babylonians came. That's what came, not good. Verse 18. I'm going to skip ahead and we'll close on this note. This is now Jeremiah's response to what he has just said. If you are thinking of a man who would stand in front of the temple and deliver this message and go, did my duty, now I'm going to watch the lightning fall. You got it wrong. He was deeply grieved. It tore him up. I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint within me, says Jeremiah. Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with foreign idols? The harvest is past. The summer is ended and we are not saved. What a picture. Summer is over. It's too late. Harvest is past and my people still don't have what they need to survive. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? What moves you? What causes you Anguish, torment, tears? It's a good question to ask yourself. When Nehemiah heard that the people in Jerusalem 
were in deep distress and the gates were torn down, the walls not built, the gates burned with fire. Nehemiah wasn't in Jerusalem. He was way over in Neo-Babylonia, over in Persia. It says, And I sat down for many days, and I mourned, and I fasted, and I wept. You know how a lot of, lot of us would respond? Serves them right. If they live like that, serves them right. This man wept. This man was moved. He is mourning over his people. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Now, east of Gilead, east of Galilee, if you've got a map in the back of your Bible, you see a little body of water up in the north called Galilee. And just east of Galilee is the heights of Gilead, and there was a balsam tree that was there. Resin was extracted and applied as a poultice to infected wounds, and it sucked out the poison. That was the balm of Gilead. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there nothing that can bring relief and comfort to my people? No, the wound is too severe, he said. And here's the picture. God is the doctor. He offers the cure, but they won't go to the hospital. They won't be treated. And that's what causes him the most pain because he knows they could be cured if they take the medicine. As we close tonight, I'm going to ask you to think of some deep, hurtful, distressing thing in your life. And I know we all have one or 500. And you bring that before the Lord. And if it's causing you bitterness and pain and anguish, you bring that before the Lord tonight. Because there is a balm in Christ. Not east of Galilee, but Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee, who went to Jerusalem and paid for our sins on Calvary's cross, and offers a balm of healing. If you're in torment, if you're in anguish, if you're in pain tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for the timeless words of a prophet from thousands of years ago that reads like it was just printed today. We are in a country that is very similar to the conditions of Judah so long ago. A nation called by your name, a nation that would certainly say in God we trust, would certainly point to Ten Commandments, would certainly have them displayed in public courseways, and at the same time, a nation that had a severe wound because they did what was right in their own eyes. They turned from you. They were filled with their own ways. They were backslidden in heart. And so, Father, we pray that we would be moved and touched by the condition of our country enough to tell people where there is a balm to be found. Then, Lord, tonight, would you heal the wound of your people, the wounds that we all bear the deep emotional scars that we carry from a past occurrence, a death, a divorce, a business deal, a breach of trust. And would you apply your heel to our lives? And Lord, as we're leaving tonight, if there's someone that you would lead us to pray for or with, help us, Lord, to just 
boldly go and pray for them with them and bring true healing in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.